0: So my pleasure now to introduce the next speaker, Dr. Halmy. Dr. Halmy has been practicing dermatology for over 20 years. He is currently in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona. He started his career as an assistant professor in dermatology at Thomas Jefferson University. Though no longer in full-time academics, he continues to teach residents as the director of dermatology at St. Joseph's Hospital. Please join me in, in welcoming Dr. Halmy. works. Testing, testing, hello. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Society again uh, for inviting me here, and I'd like to thank you all for being here as well this morning. Just curious uh, how many folks use laser once in a while in their practice? How many folks refer patients to lasers once in a while? How many people stumbled in the wrong room and thought this was a timeshare presentation? No? Sorry, okay. Oh, it's next door. All right, so lasers are cool. uh, All these people with their cool lasers have one guy to thank. This guy, Albert Einstein, in 1918, who first came up with the theory that if you could make stimulated emission of radiation, you could make a laser beam. It wasn't until 1960 that actually a laser was first made by uh, Maimon. So basically, laser is light. It's light with three particular characteristics. First characteristic, it's monochromatic. It's one single wavelength. Sometimes, actually, it's a small range of wavelengths. It's collimated, which means the beam goes in all the laser, um, all the wavelengths go in the same direction. And it's coherent, meaning that all the sinusoidal wavelength curves are all in sync. So it's laser. That's monochromatic, collimated, and coherent. Now, the reason that lasers are so uh, useful in medicine, especially uh, dermatology, is that everything in the world has an absorption spectrum. Everything absorbs different wavelengths of light at different preferences. The main chromophores in the skin are water, melanin, and hemoglobin. So, basically, there are three main categories of lasers lasers that shoot light that's absorbed by melanin or pigment lasers, lasers that shoot light that's absorbed by hemoglobin or vascular lasers, and lasers that shoot light that are absorbed by water or water lasers, for lack of a better term. So, and to know where we are, it's always kind of fun to see where we've come from. So, a little brief history on lasers and dermatology. Act one, the beginning. So, it was back in 1964 that Goldman, the king of lasers, our, our grandfather of lasers, first used a ruby laser to treat tattoos. And he picked the right wavelength, 694 is a good wavelength for tattoo ink, But unfortunately, it was a continuous wave laser and that type of laser was able to pass heat to its neighbors. So that was kind of shelled, it didn't work too well for tattoos. The analogy was, if you had a smart bomb that knew where the bad guy was, it could go right to the bad guy. But if it was a nuclear device, it would kind of destroy the whole city and that's really not what you want. Another early laser was the argon laser, continuous wave. It was targeting hemoglobin, again the same kind of problem, yet hit the target. But it also had all this non-specific heat, so it caused scarring. So it was tried; it worked sometimes, but really wasn't a great tool for treating things like uh, port wine stains. Another earlier laser was the CO2 laser. It's a water laser. It was touted to be better than electrocautery because there was less non-specific heat destruction compared to electrocautery. For example, if this was a bumper award, and you took an electrocautery device and you're the best electrocautery surgeon in the world, and at that visit the bump was completely flat to the skin, well, if you had the patient come back three days later, this is the amount of uh, necrosis you'd have. You didn't know it at the time, but you're heating that deep layer of skin, which caused necrosis. So that's the difference. So that's how much improvement you got with a continuous-wave CO2 laser. It was slightly better, but not dramatically better. So back in the late 70s and early 80s, these people were trying to sell CO2 lasers and everyone's excited because it was a laser and they say, well, this is a painless, it heals faster, it doesn't hurt, Uh, there's no scars. Well, all the claims really weren't that true, so a bunch of people bought these CO2 lasers, realized all they could use them on were vascular bumps and warts and then realized, well, we'll stick them in the closet. So, 1983, the laser world really turned around uh, uh, Rox Anderson and uh, Parrish came up with a theory of selective photothermalysis. In this theory, they say, well, not only if you pick a laser that matches the target, if the pulse duration of the laser was so short that it didn't have time to pass heat to its neighbor, you could selectively now destroy that target. To use the same analogy, you've had the smart bomb that found the crook, but it just destroyed him and nothing else. You could now destroy that target selectively. So, the target they looked at was the uh, capillary in a port wine stain, and they made a laser, they figured out the thermal relaxation time, and it worked. And it was pretty amazing. They're now able to treat vascular lesions without a scar, and it was a really revolutionary thing in lasers. So, they took that same theory, and they said, well, let's try this on that pigment laser. So, some Scots took that ruby laser and said, well, let's make the pulse duration really short. So, they Q switched it, and now it's a 20 nanosecond pulse duration, and they tried to get the same guy with his tattoo, and this time it worked. Then they did the same thing with water lasers. They said, well, you know, can we do better than those continuous wave lasers? So this is the amount of non-specific heat damage you'd get from a continuous wave laser. Now with the pulse laser, you get even less. There are other lasers like erbium lasers that cause even less non-specific heat destruction. So now you had a tool that could plane the skin, something we really weren't able to do effectively before. And CO2 laser resurfacing hit the scene, and it was really dramatic. I mean, the amount of changes you got before and after from CO2 laser resurfacing was something we'd never seen before, and it was, it was pretty encouraging. Try to target hair. Problem with the pigment lasers, at first is they were too long. They were continuous waves, so that didn't work on hair. Then when they pulsed them, the pulse duration was too short. That didn't work on hair. So they made medium pulse lasers. Now, that was able to effectively target hair. So with medium pulse pigment lasers, you can get rid of hair. But as great as things were seeming, all was not well. Those CO2 laser resurfacing procedures were pretty dramatic. They really weren't for wimps. There was prolonged healing. There was pigment alteration. There was potential scarring. It It was a really dramatic procedure that, after a while, most germs didn't have the stomach to keep doing these procedures this hypopigmentation almost became an expectation, not really a side effect. And the more sun damage you had, the more this hypopigmentation showed up, and you couldn't really avoid it. So at the very, very beginning, people actually used that laser to treat wrinkles because we didn't know what was going to happen. So end- people end up with these like zebra stripes above their lip. That was a disaster. Then they tried to do cosmetic zones like an upper lip. That didn't work. So eventually, they extended at least to this area to try to mask that uh, demarcation. This is a year after CO2 laser resurfacing. Uh, clearly, a disastrous outcome. Permanent tropion, scarring, these are the type of things that were starting to happen more and more with these procedures. Innovation. So, about 10 years ago, that same smart guy, Rox Anderson, came up with the theory of fractional photothermolysis. So, now with fractional photothermolysis, instead of doing broad areas of ablation, he had small little columns of uh, heat destruction, and the columns were far enough apart that you didn 't get <coughs> excuse me didn 't get broad ablation you got these little thermal zones, little thermal zones, and that caused um, collagen remodeling and You can have an erbium laser do this or a CO2 laser do this in the background through all this there 's been the quest for tightening a lot of these laser procedures can help with wrinkles, pigment, contour. But to actually get tightening either on the face or other body parts has been a big challenge. Back in the early 2000s, there were some radio frequency, device, radio frequency devices, cool touch devices trying to tighten the skin. And the early results were pretty astounding. I mean, the published res- results on these early devices were really unbelievable. And unfortunately, the rest of the world, after a while, found them to be unbelievable. It, just, it was hard to reproduce what those early studies promised. Over the years, however, there's been refinement with these devices, there's been some other modalities used, so it's an ongoing thing. It's one of the biggest growing areas, tightening the skin, Um, so there's hope in the future. And that's the little history of lasers. So where are we today? What what does the laser world look like today? Well, vascular lasers, the main range is from 532 nanometers to 940 nanometers. The durations can vary. The smaller, the shorter the duration. it's better for smaller vessels. Larger durations target larger blood vessels. A lot of these devices now have epidermal cooling, so you can really increase the power without hurting the epidermis. The three main primary pigment-specific lasers are the YAG, Alexandrite, and Ruby. Now, one thing to be aware of, not all Ruby lasers, not all YAG lasers are the same. you know, might sell you a laser, and, hey, it's a YAG, it does all these things, but the peak powers can vary greatly amongst these machines, so you got to be careful when you're going out and purchasing one of these guys. Pigment lasers now with medium pulses, target hair. And there's pseudo-pigment lasers, they're really not pseudo-lasers, but they're lasers that were meant for vascular lesions. They actually can be used on pigment lesions, and also the water lasers, the ablative lasers, can also help pigment disorders as well. So when we talk about the uh, ablative of the water lasers, the dermal lasers, they can be either ablative or non-ablative. They can be very destructive when they're continuous wave, they can be lightly ablative when they're ultra-pulse, and they can be somewhat less ablative or non-ablative when they're fractionated. There are a handful of non-laser devices. Usually in these laser talks, we kind of lump them in IPL, Intense Pulse Light, it's been around for a long time, since the 80s. Um, it's usually kind of thrown in with most laser talks. It's light, after all. Um, it's not really a laser. It's filtered light, but it is light, and, and it's really been around for a long time. And it's gone through a lot of changes, like a lot of the other laser devices have. There are frequency devices, electromagnetic uh, waves that heat the skin. There's plasma devices. There's ultrasound devices. Lots of different modalities are being used to uh, help treat the skin. So, what I'm going to spend most of the time on now is looking at clinical entities. Um, and for each clinical condition, kind of give a summary of, is this something that works well with laser? Is this something that works bad with laser? What the pitfalls are? Um, some little pithy summary at the end. Now, on all these slides, we're assuming two things. One, that the right laser is being used. Lots of lasers out there, and certain lasers will focus on certain targets better than other lasers. This, for example, is not the right laser for the job. The other thing you want is to use the laser properly. Um, if you misuse these, if you don't know how to use them, you're not going to get the optimal results. And Hal here is still having a problem trying to get used to this surgery. All right, let's start with some simple stuff. Solar lentigos. Now, we're talking about discrete lesions here, not general dyschromia. Lentigos work best if they're dark on light skin the laser needs some pigment to target. If it's a very faint lentigo, it may not have enough pigment to actually be absorbed by it. And always when you have darker skin with lasers, you have to be somewhat careful because most laser light will also interact with skin pigment. So you've got to be careful with lighter lentigos on darker skin. This works really well. It's one of the uh, you know, classic things we do with lasers. Usually it takes one treatment to get rid of them. As my son would say, it's a no-brainer. This is a slide to remind me of something interesting that I found, and um, I've talked to a few other laser colleagues, and they found the same thing, and it's kind of sobering. Lasers work so well on lentigos that when it doesn't work, you kind of scratch your head. So over the years, and I remember the first case was probably about 15 years ago, treated a lentigo, simple lentigo, and it came back. So I zapped it with a different laser, and it came back. And it was kind of weird, it's like, well, these usually go away, and it looked less suspicious than this thing. It was just an even brown patch that I can't imagine thinking anything else but a lentigo. So I biopsied it, and it was a melanoma. And I've had that happen about five times, which is a little scary because these, I mean, these lesions look totally benign. And a couple other colleagues, if they've had the same, same um, thing happen to them where they've seen these totally benign lentigos, benign-looking lentigos, recur after laser, and they biopsy them in the melanoma. So it's a little, little pearl. It's gotten to the point now where I am less apt to biopsy an ordinary-looking lentigo if it, uh, if it really recurs quickly after laser. Here's a typical uh, patient with all of her lentigos, and that's after one treatment. So it's a pretty, pretty neat, very simple device uh, for discrete lentigos. Pigment-specific lasers do a great job dyschromia. I'm not talking about melasma here. We'll talk about that in a second. Success rate is variable. Um, you can use pigment-specific lasers, but actually the non-pigment-specific lasers, something like a fractionated laser, an IPL, um, those do somewhat better when it's general dyschromia. The risks, again, are very, very low. Again, it's a pretty pretty good condition that we typically can help. This is not my patient. This is a Fraxel patient, of uh, another doctor. Here's some dyschromia. And that's the type of thing we hope to achieve. The problem is it's, it isn't 100%. There's some patients, for whatever reason, their dyschromia just doesn't respond quite so well to a fractionated laser or an IPL. This is a special type of dyschromia. This is a melanin pigmentation. And these do very well with laser, especially the pigment-specific lasers. And she, here she is after, her, um, after a couple treatments. Melasma. Laser is not really the best tool for melasma. Um, really ought to try bleaching creams, whatever combinations, whatever strengths you can do to uh, treat melasma. There are you know, a variety of lasers out there that can try to help melasma. And again, um, some of these lasers are pigment-specific, so you've got to be careful with darker skin. Some of them aren't pigment-specific, but anytime you use a laser, pretty much, there's going to be inflammation. And as we know, patients with darker skin react, you know, sometimes badly to inflammation no matter what the source. So oftentimes there can be prolonged hyperpigmentation. The good news is the hyperpigmentation that comes from a laser almost always goes away. Success rate is variable. I mean, it might be able to improve or eliminate melasma, but but the big, big problem is it comes back. It, it always comes back. We cannot stop someone from getting melasma. We know that sun protection is very, very important. But even in the best circumstances, the melasma is going to come back. 10 years ago or so, when Fraxel hit the scene, it was going to be the new laser for melasma. And everyone's very excited about it. And um, after about five or six years, the people who give these talks, you were saying, you know, it comes back. So it can be frustrating for a patient to pay, you know, quite a bit of money to have a laser procedure done, looks great for two months, and then comes right back. So again, I don't think melasma is a great target for lasers, but it is an option for patients, you know, especially if they're desperate. Calfella macules do okay with laser. There's one big pitfall. For some reason, lower extremity lesions can often darken after being treated with a pigment-specific laser. So you've got to be really careful when you treat lower extremities. Uh, You really want to test a small area before doing a big area, because otherwise you could be left with a much darker spot in a very unhappy patient. It's variable. Half the cases kind of respond, half the cases don't respond. When it does respond, it tends to respond very well. When it doesn't respond, it really doesn't respond much at all. And it takes a few treatments, usually just to even out some of the honeycombing you might get from the first treatment. The risks are low in terms of scarring or pigment alteration. The big problem is recurrence. For some strange reason, au lait macules like to recur. So what I typically do is I'll take a patient, I'll test a small area, kick them out of the office, have them come back about six or seven months later. They don't quite understand that, and I try to explain why. It's just there's a chance the thing could come back. I'm really not doing anyone a favor if I remove their Café lait macule, and they're all happy, and then three months later it comes back. So I usually wait about six or seven months to make sure that it doesn't recur before doing the full treatment. Here's a little guy with his cafe macule. Mostly gone. This of course is a doctor's wife. And this was before I knew about this lower leg thing. This was, this was about 20 years ago. And uh, it's a funny type, of, it's, it's really a spilus, which is a combination of cafe and little nevi. And there she is after one treatment. Terrible, um, never went away, could never lighten that. Um, and that's first what clued me into the, the fact that the lower extremity can be a danger zone. You wanna, when it comes to treating tattoos, um, you're gonna have to pick the right colors. The oranges, the purples, the pinks, they don't all do very well. I am somewhat shocked actually. If you had one target that was good for a laser, It'd be a tattoo, and you think they'd be able to make a tattoo that responds really well to purple. Um, It's just just a hard color to treat. One of the big pitfalls is white or tan ink. If you zap white or tan ink with a pigment-specific laser, it's going to oxidize and turn jet black. So it's really important to make sure that there is no white or tan ink in the tattoo. Sometimes it's hard for me to see because the colors do fade, so I Make it clear to the patient what the risk is if there is white tattoo ink. And I ask him, "Is there any white in here?" Oh no, doctor, isn't. And if it turns black right away, I know there was ink there. had in A case where I was treating lentigos on this woman's face and zapping around, zapping them, and everything's going great. And all of a sudden, this area turned jet black near her lateral eyebrow, and right away, I knew what it was. But there was no sign of any cosmetic tattooing on her eyes at all and I asked her, have you ever had any cosmetic tattoos? Oh yeah, about 20 years ago I had uh, some tattooing in the eyebrow. So even though you couldn't visibly see the tattooing on the eyebrow, it was still there and the laser made it jet black, not the kind of outcome you want. So now I make a rule whenever I'm doing latigos around the forehead or near the eyes, ask a patient if they've had any cosmetic tattooing. Tattoos work pretty well. Uh, Amateur tattoos, even though they're deeper in general than professional tattoos, the density is less, so they tend to respond much better than professional tattoos. And they can sometimes go away with one or two treatments. Sometimes it takes eight or 10 treatments. It's very variable. I actually stop trying to predict for patients how many sessions it could take because I've been dead wrong on either side of the coin. So I just tell them, well, it's this broad range, and we go from there. Probably the biggest risk of the procedure is that you could do a half dozen procedures, and all of a sudden, it's not improving anymore, now they got this smudgy tattoo on their arm, you know. Instead of this pristine, you know, panther, now they got this blob of smudge, and they're stuck with it. And in doing all these kind of procedures, I'm—I try to be very upfront and almost pessimistic sometimes about the expectations. Um, to try to, you know, sugarcoat things and say, "Oh, it's great. Come on in. We'll zap it." you know, it's going to lead you down a very bad path. So I make it very clear that one of the worst risks, is if you could go through this, you could spend a lot of money and end up with smudge on your arm. And that is true for any color. Even the, the best colors, the blues, the blacks, amateur tattoos, they can sometimes not respond for whatever reason. Hypopigmentation, kind of common. Um, it's not unusual to get little mottled hypopigmentation when all said and done. Some sun exposure usually evens it out a bit, usually not to the extent where patients are unhappy with it. They're very happy not to have a tattoo there. Scarring is possible. It's not very common. There certain areas that are more likely, especially the ankle. That's kind of a danger zone. It's really common for ankles to give some type of texture change there, and, and patients should be warned. So it's pretty you know, neat technology, good results if, you have, uh, if you're treating the right colors. Here's a tattoo, professional tattoo after about six treatments. You can see this was a ruby laser, so the red is not uh, treated very well with ruby. Ruby and Alexandrite do the blues, blacks, greens. They do red sometimes. The YAG laser does red,